again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and on today's show, we will continue our discussion of the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, also known as Calvinism. I'd like to again remind those of my listeners who are atheists or who listen for the usual apologetical issues to please hang in there with this series dealing with more systematic theological issues, because Understanding the reform position will pay dividends later on in understanding some of my responses to things like Molinism, or my evaluations of the free will defense theodicy, or even why I'm not too sure about things like best possible world semantics as a response to the problems of evil and suffering. Now, before we dive into the show, I'd like to make a small pitch to you to share this show with your friends or your family or your coworkers or really anyone who you think might be interested in these topics we discuss uh, on the episodes of The Freed Thinker. In November, we reached just under 13,000 feed hits. Uh, so thank you all um, who are listening to these shows. And, and uh, I have a goal, it's kind of ambitious, to double that by the end of 2015, which really gives us now just a little over, um, a little over two weeks and we're only about 8,000 hits uh, so far for the month. So it's it, it's ambitious, but I know we can do it. So please, if you enjoy this show and any of the past episodes, feel free to link them or share them on your favorite social media or just email them around or mention them or however you get the word out. Uh, I'd really appreciate uh, the grassroots effort uh, from all of you who listen and enjoy the show. Now, I'd also like to ask you to consider becoming a partner with us here through our Patreon account or through the Podbean crowdfunding link uh, on the blog. I'm currently in a campaign to get some new sound equipment to help with the quality of the shows, uh, and a gift of any amount would really be appreciated. So I I, I thank you so much in advance for those uh, who decide that they would like to partner with us. If you also would like to hear some great content from other content creators, why not stop by the Christus Victor Network at www.christusvictornetwork.com to see what they're dishing up there. Thank you again for all of your support, and so with that, let's dive right in and explore the Calvinistic doctrine known as Irresistible Grace. Enjoy the show. fair to call the doctrine of total depravity the initial condition or state of affairs into which the doctrines of grace act upon. Unconditional election and limited atonement, the means by which the doctrines of grace act upon that initial state of affairs, and now irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints as the logical outcomes or guaranteed effects of the doctrines of grace. 
That is to say, the to- that total depravity describes the condition in which fallen man placed himself after the fall, and thus is the universal situation in which all humanity has been in ever since. The situation of every human is one of mortality due to the working of the first sin in the garden, and is then verified and ratified with every further sin of every individual man and woman and child. This is the background, the stage for the drama of redemption. If man is to have a relationship with God, it cannot be a movement from earth toward heaven, but, as Jacob's ladder illustrates, it must be provided for us from heaven and brought down to us. Thus, God first chooses his elect and then provides the proper means and ends of salvation, regeneration, and atonement. Thus, the doctrines of unconditional election and limited atonement must necessarily be holy works of God and are the active means by which God overcomes the fallen condition of man. We talked about this as being the Russian nesting dolls, where as you peel back the layers, as you pull off the top, there's another doctrine inside. They flow from within each other. You can't take any doctrine and and try to understand it apart from the others. And I argued before that once you have total depravity, if you're going to get any type of salvation, you have to go through the the doctrines uh, of grace. The next two the next two doctrines then are logical outworkings of the first three. If God sovereignly elects those who will be saved and provides the complete and only actual atonement for them Himself, then none who have been elected could possibly resist. These two absolute actions of God. Thus, the grace of God given to his elect is irresistible. Then, if his grace is irresistible and conversion occurs, this salvation will be seen through to the end or else God's election and atonement may possibly have been in vain and one of his decrees would fail. Therefore, no saint who has been elected by God will fail to receive the future glory promised to those who are saved. Remember, I I keep trying to couch this in terms of this is the foundation for the Christian assurance for our rest in Jesus Christ. Yet this is not our own doing. It's not by our own will or our power, but is again the active work of God. God causes us to persevere. This is not the disputed doctrine of eternal security. Uh, It's not the kind of once saved, always saved antinomianism, but is wholly the work of God in saving, sanctifying, and glorifying his children, his people, his sheep, his bride, his church, his elect. Let us not confuse this doctrine with the concept of secure salvation through works. We were not saved by works, nor will we be sustained or glorified by them. Glorification, like salvation, is wholly a work of God, as we will see in these last two episodes. And it is to these next two doctrines, and and them as the logical byproducts of the first three, that we now turn. In this study, we'll be looking at the first of the byproducts, irresistible grace. Involved with this discussion, we will necessarily speak of other doctrines, such as regeneration and effectual calling, And we will visit with old friends like sovereignty, election, reprobation, and free will. Due to this fact that so many doctrines are involved in this one doctrine of Calvinism, this study will be, uh, much like the others, necessarily broad. 
So what are some of the things that people have said or defined uh, about this doctrine? Well, the Westminster Confession in chapter 10, section 1 says, quote, All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace." R.C. Sproul, in his book of Grace Unknown, page 184, says, quote, Monergistic regeneration is exclusively a divine act. Man does not have the creative power God has. To quicken a person who is spiritually dead is something only God can do. A corpse cannot revive itself. It cannot even assist in the effort. It can only respond after receiving new life. Not only can it respond then, it most certainly will respond. In regeneration, the soul of man is utterly passive until it has been made alive. It offers no help in reviving itself. End quote. Now, while these definitions or conceptions are helpful, the core of this doctrine is simply that God's sovereign decision to elect and finally to save those whom he has elected is assured to come to pass and cannot be thwarted by human sin, angelic rebellion, or any other force in nature. No man who has been elected by God can resist the saving grace that God has for him, because God has paid the sacrifice and redeemed him from slavery to sin and death. In doing so, he acts to regenerate the nature of the man from dead to living, we will again begin uh, with the scripture references to this doctrine and to the others uh, and some of the others that help to inform us on it and then move on to some of the theological nuances or inferences that support it. Finally, we'll deal with some of the objections to the doctrine, uh, though the ones put forth are rather weak uh, if the previous three doctrines have been ably presented and accepted already. So what are some of the passages uh, that help to support this doctrine of irresistible grace? Well, the first one that we're going to look at is going to be Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel 36, uh, chapter 24, uh, verses 24 to 28 says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Uh, going on, actually, let's keep going. 29. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then. 
You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. We see in this passage the active nature of the work of God at regeneration and conversion and the total passivity of man. Here, it's God who chooses us. He says, I will take you. It's God who removes us. He says, he'll remove us from the nations and bring us into your own land. It's God who washes us. He says, I will sprinkle water on you. It's God who cleanses us. He says, I will, and you shall be clean. It's God who regenerates us. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's God who indwells us and saves us and converts us. He says, I will put my spirit in with you. It's God who sanctifies us. Notice it says, and he will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's God who adopts us. He says, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Notice that it's not until after all this happens in verse 31 that it says, then you will remember your evil ways. Notice the absolute passivity on the part of man. This is clearly stated in the fact that even our obedience to what God commands is only done by the enabling of God where he causes us to comply with his statutes and rules. Contrary to how many evangelical preachers express it in their gospel calls, this verse clearly shows that we do not choose God, repent, believe, or progress in sanctification by our own will or power, and we definitely are not responsible for our own regeneration. What this passage also helps us to understand is that irresistible grace and monergistic regeneration is not only a New Testament teaching. God has always been the one responsible for the whole of salvation throughout the entire history of redemption. No person has ever ascended to God, but God has always been the one responsible for descending, for condescending to us in order to bring salvation to his people. What else? We can look at John 16, verses 8 through 10. John 16, verses 8 through 10. Here he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and he, talking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Notice in this passage that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to convince the world concerning its sin. It would do great violence to the text to say that somehow men are convicted concerning their sin on their own according uh, on their own accord and then seek the spirit. No person has ever felt the need for their own salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts. We can see Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 verse 14 talking of uh, a convert in Europe named Lydia, quote, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Here is an explicit example that Lydia only received salvation 
after God had regenerated her heart so that she would receive the gospel and be saved. This divine illumination is always required for salvation. But there's there's tons of other passages. Let's look at Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Here, Jeremiah is pronouncing the impending threat of captivity and makes reference to our ability to do good as just as possible as an Ethiopian to change their skin color or a leopard its spots. How then can we ever do the good of humbling ourselves and repenting without the work of the Spirit? We can do that in the same way that an Ethiopian can change their skin color or a leopard can change its spots. It's not happening, folks. What about John chapter 6? John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Here he's responding to uh, some Jewish objections um, when he says that he's the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, And they ask him about it. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Could it be any more clear? No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Remember, we saw before when we were talking about um, election, Uh, that the word that is translated as draws here is the Greek word helko, which doesn't mean wooing or pleading or asking politely or, or inspiring them or anything like that. It's the word used for when fishermen drag fish out of the sea. It's the word used for pulling water with a bucket out of a well. It's the same word used in Acts when the people dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities. And it's the same word that James uses when he says that the rich are dragging the poor into court. The connotation here is that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father compels them. He causes them. He forces them. It is not some polite act of God in respecting our persons and our wills. It is the Father unilaterally acting to drag us into the presence of Christ. Why does he need to drag us? Because we're corpses. We're dead. We are not living. We cannot, we cannot go along with the request. Uh, let's look to Romans 9. We're going to read a little bit longer of a passage. Romans 9 is a major issue. It's a major sticking point for Arminians. So we're going to read a, a little bit longer of a section. Romans 9, verses 10 through 26. He's here uh, talking about uh, uh, Israel, uh, but he does a lot of things with sovereignty. So chapter 9, verses 10 through 26 says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. We keep coming back to this passage, but notice again that God had made his choice explicitly before Jacob and Esau were even born or had done anything, whether believing or unbelieving, repentant, unrepentant, humble, or or, or prideful, God chose explicitly so that his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Notice that later on he says it does not depend on the man who wills. Explicitly, it doesn't depend on the man who wills. Notice that verse 16 explicitly says that it is not based on our desires or our efforts or our wills. God caused Pharaoh to harden his heart and to sin. Right? It says that God hardens whom he wants to harden. Does Paul complain that, that that's somehow God violating Pharaoh's will? No. He says expressly he did it to bring himself glory. And what of the objection that this is unfair? Because if God predestines uh, for those who will believe and who, who won't believe, then we shouldn't really be culpable of our actions, should we? What's the problem? That's the exact argument that, the, uh, that is the objection that Paul is responding to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a Christian at all interested in aligning your theology with the Bible, then why would you want to have your theology be the exact objections lobbied against Paul that he's responding to? Now, notice also that it is God who says who his people will be. Nowhere is there any mention of why or because they believed or they repented or they humbled themselves or anything like that. It explicitly says that's not why. Their belief, their obedience is seen as the evidence 
that they are God's people, the remnant, the Israel within Israel, not the cause of it. God chooses his people through and through. Does he choose and then really sit on the sidelines and hope that we will agree and go along with it? May againita, let it never be uh, in the Greek. Uh, if we look back just uh, just a few verses, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. We looked at this before. This is the golden chain of salvation. He says 28 uh, through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and the, these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified we have to remember that each one of these links in the golden chain is a guaranteed result for the entire group from the previous link. That is to say, we could logically place the modifier all in front of each classification to get the meaning of this passage. There was not one person from one of the categories that is not represented or carried through to the next. All those who are predestined, all those who are elected will be called. All those who are called will be justified. All those who are justified will be glorified. There will never be one who has been elected by God who will not reach the point of glorification, nor will anyone reach glorification that was not present in the initial election. Once God has elected someone, there can be no hindrance in that person's progression from election to glorification. We can't divide and decide to give up halfway through this progression nor will God remove us from it because we have sinned. In order for this verse to stand, each new link must be absolutely and sovereignly administered to the individual. Otherwise, any of the links may fail at any time and make the eternal decrees of God to be just possibilities rather than actualities. And what does that do to your assurance, Christian? What does that do to your assurance? Why, as a Calvinist, can I have assurance of my salvation? Because I know that if God elected me, that God is the one that sees it through to the end. It's not based on my will. It's not based on my actions. It's not based on me. God is the one who chose me before the foundations of the world in Jesus Christ. God is the one who effectively called me. God is the one who justifies me. God is the one who excuse me, causes me to persevere. And therefore, God is the one who will glorify me. That's the basis of our assurance. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. The reason that this verse that we'll read here in a second uh, is used, not because of what Paul explicitly states, but rather what he implicitly assumes. Let's, let's read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, 
the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by humans, wisdom, uh, by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The truth that is spiritually discerned is not only the further doctrines that one learns after salvation, but also the requirements for salvation itself. In this context, what is foolishness to those in the flesh is Christ crucified. The basis for our salvation. It can be put in this type of formulation. Premise one, the salvation God provides can only be discerned, right? Can only be accepted. Can only we can only repent by those who are possessed by the Spirit. Premise two: No person is possessed by the Spirit before their conversion. Premise three: Therefore, if God had not regenerated us and given His Spirit prior to conversion, no one would have been saved. We see that Paul already assumes that the Spirit is necessary before anyone can even believe in Christ crucified. No one who is dead in their sin and living in the flesh can come to the spiritual understanding all on their own. Thus, in this passage, we have a clear teaching on the Reformed view of regeneration by the Holy Spirit prior to a knowledge of their need for grace and repentance of sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot do that when you are still carnal and a natural man before regeneration. That only comes about through regeneration. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Let's also look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. We saw this one before. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now we've seen this passage before, but it bears reminding here. In the Greek, the syntax requires that the phrase, and this is not of your own doing, necessarily refers back to the entire condition that preceded it. Namely, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. It would not be a true statement to say that what is not of ourselves is the salvation by grace, but that the faith is of our own doing. You can't bifurcate the passage that way. Even the faith in this work of salvation is a work of God. As the Westminster Confession stated, we are made willing by his grace. Let's look also at Philippians one twenty nine. Philippians one twenty nine says, <clears throat> For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What has been granted to us in Philippians one twenty nine? Not only to believe. Part of what's been granted to us. Our belief itself is part of what has been granted, what has been gifted to us. Or again in verse uh, in chapter Philippians 2, um, 13, for it says, For it is by God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is it that God is at work in us doing? Causing us to will and to work. For his good pleasure. God is the one who causes us to will, to want, to humble ourselves, to repent. That is an act of God. These two passages in Philippians show us that that not only is salvation a gracious gift of God, but also that our belief is a gift of God as well. What about uh, James? One eighteen, James one eighteen says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Or again, for in First Peter, First Peter chapter one, twenty three to twenty five says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. These passages in James and in First Peter help us to see that this effectual calling and regeneration is inextricably connected to the proclamation of the gospel to individuals. This is the point where the general gospel call, which is to be given to everyone. Sorry, again, it's, it's just ridiculous when people say that Calvinism uh, is against evangelism. It's not. So it's clear when, when this gospel call is preached to all people, that it is made effectual for the elect by the Holy Spirit. Because of this, we can say that no one is converted by looking at a majestic sunrise or a masterpiece of artistic ability, uh, nor hearing a moving song or experiencing a traumatic life experience. They are not converted by a healing, but rather it is always in conjunction with the proclaimed word of the gospel that the spirit regenerates and enables the person to believe for someone to be saved by the gospel without being confronted with it would be an absurdity of the worst kind it would be on par with claiming that that someone enjoys the taste of strawberries though they've never had one cross their lips the dry bones of ezekiel 37 
only came to life when Ezekiel spoke the words of God over them and the Spirit brought them to life. And not by subject, some subjective experience that they had while they were dead, where they were like, hey, you know, we're dead. This kind of sucks. It would be better to be alive in God. Let's choose uh, to go along with, 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 with what Ezekiel's saying. No, they were dead. They were they were dry bones. There was no marrow. There was no sinews. There was nothing. They were dead. So those are some of the biblical passages. What about uh, some of the, the, the way that our regeneration is talked about? Right? Salvation is often called a new birth in the Bible. A believer is said to be born again. These are not terms that Reformed theologians coined in order to make their doctrines work. These are the very words of Scripture and of Jesus himself to Nicodemus in John 3. These terms are not accidental. They're not vague. Jesus did not mean them in some cryptic or archaic sense. He chose birth for a reason. He meant that there must be an actual and real, although spiritual, kind of birth. We're dead in our sins, and thus we must be born again to live. This language is very telling in our understanding of the doctrine. For which of us was active at our first birth? Whoever said, um, excuse me, please, mother and father, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you mind doing your conjugal duty in order that I might be conceived? And then nine months later or so, will you sit down and discuss the terms of my birth so that I can participate in the decision of, of when and where and how I will be brought into this world? Let's have a birthing plan. That has never happened. And our second birth is no different. It is not a synergistic work, but rather, as R.C. Sproul pointed out above, it is a monergistic. It's a one-way, one-person, one-directional, unilateral work, whereby God alone acts in our regeneration and rebirth. This can also be seen in the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus decided to raise Lazarus from the dead, and there was nothing at all that Lazarus could do to help or hinder the process. He was entirely passive. He reeked of death and was not conscious of the events until Jesus called him from the womb. Notice also here that the call of Jesus to Lazarus to rise up was an effectual call. That is, the call accomplished what it commanded to do. It didn't command Lazarus to do something and then Lazarus agreed and obeyed and went along with it. It was the call of Christ that brought about the state of Lazarus rising from the dead. It was a de decree of God. Similar <laughs> to the, degrees, the, de the decrees at creation. If we look at 2 Corinthians 4 for this concept. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 6. 3 through 6, excuse me, say, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach 
ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Let," sh- uh, so God who said, "Light shall shine out of the darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. First, notice that it's God who is veiling the unbeliever. Right, this automatically undercuts Arminianism that says uh, God wants us uh, to proclaim this, this message so that all could hear because he wants all to be saved and nothing can hinder it except their free will. Well, accept their free will and that God is blinding them. God is active in blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. Right? And what does he parallel it to? He parallels it to when God spoke creation into existence. We see that the, 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 the decree to create the universe was an unarguably irresistible act. God created ex nihilo. That is out of nothing. There was nothing in existence to resist. If that would have even been possible had there been something in existence. God spoke and creation leapt into existence. This was a sovereign decree of God. It's also no accident that Scripture speaks of our salvation as a new creation. In fact, this very point seems to be what Paul is driving at here in verse 6, where he explicitly compares God's decree to create in Genesis 1 and his decree to create us anew at salvation. He's making that direct comparison. God's irresistible decree to let the light shine out of the darkness at creation is just as sovereignly decreed as when he shines the gospel light in our hearts. He blinds some to the gospel and to others he decrees new creation. Just as the uncreated cosmos could not reject its own creation, we cannot reject our own recreation. This saving grace is irresistible. Now, it's also been discussed throughout the past several episodes, but but let us now state it again explicitly, though somewhat briefly. If we accept that God is sovereign and that God has elected those who will be saved, it would be an absolute absurdity to say that some could resist election or the application of the atonement or the regenerating call of the Spirit. We would be denying the sovereignty of God in order to maintain the absolute nature of the human will. The danger of this must be restated here and cannot be understated. We must remember that only one will is absolutely sovereign, and that is God's. We either maintain this, or we maintain that the human will is sovereign over God and capable to derail his eternal decrees. His eternal decree to let shine the light of salvation in the hearts of those whom he's chosen. If the human will can reject what God has sovereignly decreed, then God has either not decreed it, or else God is not sovereign. Either case is a rejection of the clear teaching of Scripture. Because of this absolute sovereignty of God, it would be beneficial if we even uh, begin to think of grace as something that is by nature irresistible, rather than something that can be resistible or irresistible. We should think of it like water, where to call some grace irresistible 
would be as redundant as calling some water wet. As water is by nature powerful wet stuff, we should learn to see saving grace as, by nature, irresistible saving stuff. Or we can think of grace in this scenario like the weather. We do not choose the weather. The weather simply happens to us. Here, grace happens to us. We cannot choose anything else. If rain happens to us, we get wet. If effectual grace happens to us, we get regenerated. They both are effective forces. They accomplish what it is in their nature to do. Thus, we are entirely unable to reject it if God has decreed it upon us. Because God speaks and creation acts. Now, what are some of the objections uh, to this to this doctrine? Well, first, um, if God's grace is irresistible, then human freedom is eliminated. Right? That's going to be what some people say. Now, I believe that I answered this uh, pretty ably above in the previous doctrine of election uh, and and in this brief paragraph above about the sovereignty of God. Here we must decide whether we want to maintain our own philosophical understandings of the will, which we force onto the pages of Scripture, right? And I mean that for every conception of the will. I I don't think the Bible gives us a clear understanding of the relationship of sovereignty and human will and how bound our wills are and how free they are. I don't think scripture gives us explicitly um, a a philosophy of the will. Um, But it does give us explicitly uh, doctrines of God's sovereignty, of the atonement, of the effectual call, of the decrees of God. Uh, and, And by the analogy of faith, we should understand the less clear in light of the more clear passages. Well, if we want to hold the view of the absence of the human will and salvation that is presented by God in his word, then we should do so. I would urge us to maintain a high view of God, even if it means we hold a low view of the human will, though I don't think that it does, by the way. It seems to me that the absolute sovereignty of God and the free nature of the will are entirely compatible if we're willing to simply modify how we discuss human freedom. Now, for an extensive, extensive book-length treatment of this, uh, I recommend seeing, uh, reading John Feinberg's book, The Many Faces of Evil. There's an interesting proverb, <clears throat> an old Jewish proverb that says, Take the bitter tree and plant it in the Garden of Eden, and water it with the waters there, and let the angel Gabriel be the gardener, and the tree will still bear bitter fruit. If we accept total depravity, that sin is pervasive in every component at all times and in all of us, then we will be unable to assert that our human will can somehow achieve anything other than the wages of sin, that is death. Now, what about all those passages in Scripture that seem to support the resistibility of God's grace? I'm not going to go <clears throat> excuse me, through each one of those passages. But in response to this line of argumentation, let us first state a logical disagreement with just the way the objection is phrased. If the Arminians are correct in their assertion that God is earnestly seeking to save all humanity, we would be forced to believe that God is an abject failure on the most drastic scale. For every person who believes and receives salvation in accordance with the Arminian construal, dozens or hundreds or thousands do not. The broad is the road that leads to destruction. 
For surely, even if God is not sovereign, he is at least omniscient and should rightly know the proper manner in which he could save all people. Right here, I'm actually in agreement with the atheist uh, in response to the the kind of uh, best possible world. I, I, I think uh, I can think of lots of ways, uh, just personally, uh, that God might have possibly saved all people. God, being omniscient, I'm sure could have thought, thought of something if His purpose was to save all people. Right, the slippery slope of this line of reasoning is astronomically terrifying. To follow this through, we lose not only God's sovereignty and omnipotence, but also His omniscience. A doctrine, then, which is meant to show us the omnibenevolence of the Almighty God, who desires all to be saved, shows only the futile striving of the almost mighty to scrape out a few for himself. Second, the Holy Spirit, who would, under this model, be sent to woo the human heart, could strive and struggle with the hearts of the majority of the world for their entire lives and not accomplish what he was sent into the world to do. Remember, Jesus said that the Spirit was sent into the world to convict us of our sin. Thus, even the working of the Spirit in the human heart would be of no avail. We could see God saying the very thing that we ought to speak, namely, not my wills but yours be done. God would be of the same camp as Darius, who desired to save Daniel, but was entirely unable to, and could only pace the throne room with anticipation for the morning when the stone would be pulled back to see if the lions had torn Daniel to pieces. Thirdly, as we stated previously in our discussion of particular redemption, if we hold that man can accept or reject the work of Jesus on the cross— we necessarily deny that the actual salvation occurred on the cross, that atonement was actually made, right? By holding this, the Arminians implicitly state that the work of salvation, contrary to the very words of Jesus, were not actually finished on the cross, but rather they await the catalyst of our faith. They're like instant mashed potatoes, just add faith. We thus add to the atonement in order for it to actually save. Jesus didn't accomplish redemption. He didn't accomplish reconciliation. He didn't accomplish atonement. He didn't accomplish propitiation, but only made those possible if the secret ingredient of our faith is added to energize the mix. Contrary to this, we must remember that the gospel is not good advice, which urges and woos us to believe. But it is the good news. It's a fact. It's good news that Christ already, effectively, totally, and actually has, past tense, accomplished our salvation on our behalf. Remember, it is the gospel. It is the euangelion, the good news. Right? Euangelion was a term that they would go around saying when something good had happened. When the emperor had a son, they would go out and pronounce the euangelion. Good news. There's an heir. It happened. It occurred. Jesus has not merely opened the door to a potential salvation, but is rather the very real savior of the church Euangelion. It's good news. Jesus died. He already atoned for. He propitiated for each of our names is written before the foundations of the world in the Lamb's book of life. We were predestined, each one of his children in Christ, to believe before God ever spoke the first ray of light 
into existence. Finally, we must remember that God frequently expresses his revealed will, but does not express his secret will. That is, uh, by the way, for that, you can look at Deuteronomy uh, 29.29. That is, these passages do not imply that just because we ought, that we can. God communicates what is morally right, what is just, what is holy, which is the action that brings him the most glory, but does not assume that all humanity is able to be obedient to it. Unlike Arminius, Wesley, and others, ought does not imply can. So just because there are passages that indicate that we can resist the Spirit in general revelation, we, we can sin generally, even though, even though God has revealed himself in general revelation. There's not a single text that says we can resist the regenerating and effectual call of the Spirit in the gospel when it is laid bare before his elect. His sheep know his voice. Another objection, we're told that if we believe, we will be born again. And not that we are born again so that we can believe. Well, I think I've already shown that that's not the biblical version. The biblical version is that we're born again so that we can believe. Um, but this this position is one that's held in doctoral statements uh, of many churches today. Many churches confuse the reality of regeneration with what we observe after conversion. Right? They confuse regeneration with sanctification. And thus they believe that our faith is the causal power that leads to regeneration. We commonly hear that statement such as, If you repent and believe, then you will be born again. Even though this form of evangelism is never seen in the scriptures as we saw last time. This sort of thought has even been formalized in some of our modern creedal statements. For example, the Evangelical Free Church, the EV Free Church, Doctrinal Position which has been ratified by hundreds of churches, thousands of churches, states, quote, in paragraph 8, quote, We believe that the true church is composed of all persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are united together in the body of Christ of which he is the head, end quote. It's shocking how many churches and denominations have strayed so far into this vein of thought without grasping the ghastly ramifications that it leads us to. We have to understand that regeneration is not to be confused with what we observe after repentance. Regeneration is not part of sanctification. We should see the scriptures uh, in the scriptures that regeneration is always shown to be the work of God that leads to the gift of faith through which God saves us. Thus, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. Colossians 2.13 It doesn't say when you were dead in your sins and then you believed and after that God made you alive with Christ. No, When did God make you alive with Christ? When you were still dead in your sins. When you were the dry bones. When you were Lazarus. When you stanketh of death. That's when God made you alive. Jesus tells us that regeneration is not something we can observe after our conversion because it's not something that we can observe in the first place. That's John 3, 8. 
Wayne Grudem urges us to be very biblical in, in, in even our evangelistic wording and how we formulate our gospel presentations and altar calls. We should always say, Jesus died for sin and so repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This does not only imply regeneration between the two steps, but rather assumes regeneration as a precondition to the belief in Jesus Christ. This is the consistent pattern in scripture found in Acts, for example, in which to preach the gospel and that when someone comes to faith to assume that God had regenerated them in order that they may believe. Acts 13, 48. Some final, some final thoughts uh, on the verse. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, said, Sinful man stands in need. Not of inducements or assistance to save himself, but precisely of saving. And Jesus Christ has come not to advise or urge or woo or help him save himself, but to save him. End quote. Lorraine Boatner, in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, on page 163, writes, As Calvinists, we hold that the condition of men since the fall is such that if left to themselves... They would continue in their state of rebellion and refuse all offers of salvation. Christ would have then died in vain. Common reason tells us that if a man is so fallen, so to be at, at enmity with God, that enmity must be removed before he can have any desire to do God's will. If a sinner is to desire redemption through Jesus Christ, he must receive a new disposition. He must be born again from above. John 3.3 3. Finally, I'm going to read a, a rather lengthy section from the canons uh, of the Council of Dort. This is the third and fourth main points of doctrine, starting in Article 10. Conversion is the work of God. Quote, the fact that others who are called through ministry of the gospel do, uh, do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose us in Christ, so within time he effectually, effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued from them from uh, the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness into this marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently Sorry, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. Article 11, the Holy Spirit's work in conversion. Quote, Moreover, when God carries out this good, uh, his, this good pleasure in his chosen ones, or works true conversion in them, he not only sees, it to the, sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating, regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. 
He activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. Article number 12, Regeneration, a Supernatural Work, quote, And this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead, and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures, which God works in us without our help. But this certainly does not happen only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a way of working that after God has done his work, it remains in man's power whether or not to be reborn or converted. Rather, it is an entirely supernatural work, one that is at the same time most powerful and most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work which is not lesser than or inferior in power to that of creation or of raising the dead as scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. As a result, all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are certainly, unfailingly, and effectively reborn and do actually believe. And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God is also itself active. For this reason, man himself by the grace which he has received, is also rightly said to believe and to repent. Article 13, The Incomprehensible Way of Regeneration. Quote, In this life, believers cannot fully understand uh, the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with their heart and love their Savior. Article 14, the way God gives faith, quote, In this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that it is offered by God for man to choose, but that it is in actual fact bestowed on man, breathed and infused into him. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent, the act of believing from a man's choice, rather it is a gift in the sense that he who works both willing and acting and indeed works all things in all people produces in man both the will to believe and the belief itself. That is irresistible grace. God works through and through. We couldn't do it without God. That's the foundation of our assurance. That God chose us before the foundations of the world to be found in Jesus Christ. That God accomplished our atonement. And that God applies that atonement to us. We can rest assured. Thank you again for joining us here on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. We'll pick this up next time with our last episode on the doctrines of grace, dealing with the perseverance of the saints. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or find the Freed Thinker Podcast Facebook group. Thank you again for joining us. Join us next time. Good night, and God bless.